In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Nick Polico. I'm an associate here at Trinity. I serve Redemption Church, which is an extension campus of Trinity in Palos Heights, and I get to be up here about once a month to look at God's Word with you. And this is the, uh, some of you may know what many Christians think of as the season of Epiphany, the season that follows Christmas, in which we, after having celebrated the birth of Christ, focus on the question of who this Jesus who came is, and we try to make sense of Jesus so that he can help us make sense of not only himself, but of everything. So as we, uh, at Redemption, as we go into the season, we're going to look at a few different passages that are some of the greatest texts in the New Testament that sort of provide for us these broad, swooping glorious summaries of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he continues to do. So as we look at this passage together, let's ask that God would bless us. Living God, we thank you for giving us your word, for coming to us as a God who is kind and faithful and forgiving. And so we pray that as we look at this passage, that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I uh, don't really watch the award shows. I never typically know they've even happened until I hear about it the next day. But the Golden Globes were last week, I guess. And Joker won a couple of awards and is also widely anticipated to kind of clean house at the Academy Awards, which are coming up shortly. I don't know how many of you saw that film. It was controversial because of its pretty lurid depiction of a man's descent into violence and madness. The reason I think that film is so captivating for so many people is because it is an origin story. It's a story that tries to make some sense of the origin of, of evil and of darkness. 
and we love origin stories. That's why I think 23andMe and Ancestry.com are so successful, because we want to understand some sense of our origin in order to make sense of who we are and where we came from and our world. And it is why philosophers and physicists have continued to wrestle with the greatest origin story question of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? This passage in the Gospel of John provides us with a, a cosmic origin story. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But why should we believe this origin story? I have a book on my shelf by the famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and it's meant to be sort of this little pocket companion introductory to astrophysics for people who, like me, are of very average intelligence and very limited scientific technical knowledge. So it's a helpful book, and he tries to essentially give his perspective on the history of the universe. So he starts with the Big Bang, and after describing the Big Bang for a couple of chapters, he remarks, what happened before all this? What happened before the beginning? Astrophysicists have no idea. In response, some religious people assert with a tinge of righteousness that something must have started it all, and that something is, of course, God. Now, I don't read that comment in order to actually enter into a snarky exchange with a man who's not here or to cast aspersions on him. I do it to draw our attention to the fact that this is a, and this is no pun intended, physicist, this is a big trombone moment, a highly charged conversation. Yeah. In a surrounding which there's a great deal of tension and anxiety and people of both religious and irreligious persuasions have all come to admit that science itself, meaning ob observing the natural world, is not likely to give us final answers to questions about God, about humanity, about reason. It just simply isn't. And so there has to be some other method by which we pursue answers to these questions which are of such not simply crucial but ultimate importance. And in the Gospel of John, if you, we were to go to the end of the book, near the end, John gives us his, his purpose statement, his mission statement for having written this book. And he says, these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the Apostle John wrote to an audience that inhabited a world that was every bit as pluralistic and religiously and intellectually diverse as the one we live in right now. And he wrote this gospel in order to help people in just that sort of setting to believe, among other things, this cosmic origin story that he provides for us here in the, the introduction to his gospel. He does this in part throughout the book 
by drawing our attention over and over and over again to his claim that everything in this book is, is presented as eyewitness testimony. The disciples and others saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him after he had been raised from the dead. But what we're going to focus on is a different aspect of how John helps us to believe. And that is simply by telling us a story. By telling us a story that makes sense of what we already know to be true about ourselves. A story that makes sense of who we are and the world we live in. And this is such a rich passage that I think there are a number of angles with which we could legitimately go at this. But what I want to assert to you and explore with you together this morning is this claim that, that the Apostle John wants to help us believe in Jesus by showing us that the story of Jesus makes sense of the reality of love. He tries to help us to believe in Jesus by helping us to see that the story of Jesus makes sense of the reality of love. And so this is sort of a one-point sermon and an extended meditation on the love of God in the Gospel of John and how the love of God given to us in Jesus helps us make sense of ourselves and our world in a way that helps us to believe. The Gospel of John is written by one who's described as the beloved disciple, the one who had an especially rich experience of the love of Jesus during the ministry of Jesus. He tells us in John 13, he summarizes the entire ministry of Jesus by saying, having loved his own who are in the world, meaning his followers, his people, he loved them till the end. He's the apostle, we believe, who wrote another New Testament book called 1 John, in which he declares starkly, God is love. And he, the reason he, the way he helps us, the way he, he, he draws our attention to the love of God in this passage starts by his use of a word, a term, that is translated word. In the beginning was the word. In Greek, which the Apostle John was writing in, the term he uses there, as some of you know, is a word logos, which comes into English in our word logic and things like biology. And it was a common term used in intellectual and philosophical and religious discussions of the day, and it meant generally something like the organizing principle of the universe. The reason that everything exists and that which holds all of it together is the logos. It was a term that, that Jews used in their reflection, and it was a term that Greeks used in their reflection. And it's a set of questions and debates, these questions about logos, that we still engage in today. What is it that holds everything together? Is it a personal God who's intimately involved in the goings-on of his creation? Is it a distant God who we can't access? Is it just the laws of physics? So like no matter what our worldview, all of us believe there is some sort of logos, some sort of organizing principle, some sort of root cause, ultimate power that holds everything 
together. Whether we view it as a Star Wars kind of force, a set of physical laws merely, or a personal God, or a distant God. And so what the Apostle John does is to enter into that discussion on the basis of that common ground of believing there's some sort of logos. And he says, I will explain to you, I'm going to tell you a story that sheds light on not actually what the logos is, but who the logos is. And he starts to tell the story with these words, in the beginning, which brings us back to the very start of the Bible, to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as John paraphrases Genesis 1-1 by taking what to him was a modern-day term and inserting it into that verse, he's saying, the Logos that you're all wondering about is the God of Israel. He's not an impersonal God or an impersonal force. He's a covenant God who has bound himself to his people. He is the God who made himself known to Abraham who led his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. The Logos is the God of Israel. He goes on in verse, the second half of verse 1 to say, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he begins to mystify us and to bring our minds to the edge of their understanding and then to keep going by describing this Logos as both God and somebody who is present with God. And we have here a, a, a portion of, of our understanding of the Father and the Son as distinct persons who yet together are with the Holy Spirit, one God. But we're, we're not simply given this as a means of getting our theological math right. The Apostle John is telling us that the Father and the Son dwelled together in an eternal relationship of love. Where do I get that from in this passage? It's hard, it's a little bit hard to see in English, although if we read to the very end, it's there. But when the Apostle John says the Word was with God, it's re he's really saying something more like the Word was toward God, not just with. It's a Greek word, pros, starts with pro, like to be going in the direction of something. And it means with, or, or it means toward. Why is that significant? What is the most intimate position that you and another person can have in, in a variety of relationships. It's to be towards each other. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I were both flying around our house, and the kids were screaming, and I kind of bolted into the kitchen and poured a cup of coffee and then went to disappear again to keep working on my sermon, and, and Jennifer said, wait, will you hold on a second? And I just sort of like, yeah, and she just looked at me and said, I just wanted to, to see you for a minute. And so I just stood there and we just stood there looking at each other. Imagine a father or a mother with a baby, holding the baby up, their faces towards each other, glowing in delight in one another. Imagine a couple at a wedding altar, hand in hand, 
towards one another. The word, the logos, was with God toward one another. And if you think I am maybe putting a bit too much freight on that term, if you go down to the end of the passage, and you'd have to have an actual Bible in front of you because we didn't print out quite enough, and that's my fault. But we're, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Father. Uh, uh, blah. Oh my goodness, I'm looking at the wrong part of the verse. I'm sorry. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. That language of being in the, the bosom of the Father, it's the same language that is used later in the account of the Lord's Supper when we're told the beloved disciple leaned against the bosom of Jesus because, you know, they reclined at a table on their sides in those days. It's this, it's this image of resigned, contented, gladness of fellowship between the Father and the Son from the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want to continue for a moment to just go to a couple other places in the Gospel of John where this, this delight that we can barely wrap our minds around, we can't even start to actually, between the Father and the Son is set before us. John five nineteen to 21 so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. There's this communion in every action that the Father and the Son take with one another. My sons love to do things with their dad. If they feel like they are doing a job with me, they are filled with so much delight. If, even if it's just bringing broken down cardboard to the recycling bin. There is a delight in father and son working together. And in the Gospel of John, we're shown that the love of the father and the son are expressed in our salvation. John 17, 24 is part of this glorious passage where Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified, and he's praying for his disciples, and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is lifting our eyes to consider this communion that the Father and the Son, and if we read all of those ending chapters of John and the Spirit, had together for all of eternity. And he's helping us to understand salvation in terms of our being caught up into that love. Bound up into that eternal love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. My three-year-old boy, 
um, likes to have snuggles before, you know, as he's falling asleep. And what he loves the most is for my wife, his mother, to lay on one side of his little single bed and to meet a crowd on the other side with him in the middle. And he likes to lie face down. This seems like it would be very uncomfortable with one arm over each of our necks. So his back is all kind of hyperextended and, you know, little people are much more flexible than we are. But he wants to be just sort of in the midst of us and our love. That is the image that the Gospel of John puts before us as it announces to us the salvation that is offered to us in Christ. This eternal love of, of intimate being towards one another, the Father and the Son, coming to us so that we can be swept up into it. It is this word, we are told, this Logos, who was God and who was with God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And some of you know what John literally says is that he tabernacled among us. He became the presence of God among us. It is this word, this Logos, who took on flesh who came and who performed signs in the presence of eyewitnesses to point to the reality of his coming kingdom. It is this Logos who hung on a cross for our sins and declared it is finished and who died and was buried. And after his gruesome death and burial was seen alive by his disciples. It is this God, this Logos, fully God, fully man, who came so that we could be caught up into the love of God. There's a really beautiful quote by uh, U2's Bono, which I hesitate to read because it's almost like a PCA pastor, like, punchline to quote Bono, and I just, it's almost embarrassing. And it's not because I want to uh, put any contempt on Bono, though sometimes he does drive me crazy a little bit, but... I'm not quoting this because I think quoting a celebrity about Jesus gives us credibility or anything. It's just a beautiful statement. Reflecting on the Word becoming flesh, on God the Son coming and taking on flesh to be God with us. He once said this in an interview. On Christmas Eve, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It had dawned on me before, but it really sank in. The Christmas story. The idea that God... If there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would, it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw poverty. A child, I just thought, wow, just the poetry. Unknowable love, unknowable power, describes itself as the most vulnerable. There it was. I was sitting there, and tears came down my face, and I saw the genius of this. Utter genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this, because that's exactly what we're talking about. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it makes sense. It's actually logical. It's pure logic. The essence of love had to manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become incarnate. It has to become an action. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. That is marvelous. 
If there is a God of love, he, he would have to come as close to us as possible in as much intimacy. Because love involves presence. Love involves identifying with another. Love involves pursuing the good of another. Love involves revealing oneself to another. And the Apostle John is telling us, if you want to understand the Logos, the organizing principle of the universe, of the world, and the cosmos, this is it. The God of Israel became flesh and dwelt among us. Now what this means for us, very practically, we can say, is first of all, that we must receive him. This passage tells us about this word who became flesh. Starting in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The story of Scripture, the story of the Gospel of John, it's not only a story of a God who is love. It's not only a story of love. It's a story of love spurned by us in our sin. Leading to a state of spiritual death and disconnection from God. Which we are told soberingly, including in the Gospel of John, with all of its comfort and grace and peace, is a state that will carry on into eternity if we are not removed from it. And therefore, we have to receive this love and be caught up into it. And we are told that this happens simply by believing in his name. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so it is worth engaging in a bit of self-examination and just asking whether or not we have truly believed in the Logos, in the Word made flesh. And in this passage, light is shed on what it means to believe in him. It's a synonym with receiving him. So that Jesus is an actual dynamic presence in our life who has made himself known, who has saved us, who is changing us, who is shepherding us. So that even though we are all works in progress, still racked with sins to confess and doubts and struggles, Jesus is there working on us. And we have received him. A second implication for us, and finally, involves how we can engage in a loving and constructive way with neighbors, friends, loved ones, colleagues, with whom we might have the opportunity to talk to about our faith. Given that we live in a pluralistic world where there are all sorts of competing ideas and there's all sorts of skepticism and the church doesn't always have a great deal of credibility. 
how do we engage, for example, with a neighbor like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who maybe comes to a discussion expecting Christians to be self-righteous and to share our faith in a sort of gotcha fashion. Well, you don't have an answer, so ours must be right. The Apostle John tells a story. The Apostle John engages with people who are racked with the very same sorts of doubts and cultural pressures as we are. And he on the one hand says, I'm going to give you an eyewitness account because you can trust eyewitness accounts. But on the other hand, he says, I'm going to give you a story that makes sense of love. Because this is the only story that makes sense of love. An empty, cold, vacuous universe doesn't make sense of love. It might make sense of chemicals that make us feel certain things, but it doesn't make sense of the actual value of human life and significance of human death or the reality of justice and injustice. It just doesn't. It can account for suffering, but not for right and wrong or meaning and significance. And moreover, there is no other religion, none, that sets before us a God like this. A God who not only commands us to love, but is love, personifies love in the deepest, most profound way by taking on flesh and dwelling among us being towards us in the most intimate way imaginable, taking our sins and catching us up into the eternal love of the Father and the Son. The Word was made flesh. God is love. This is the story that makes sense of your life and mine, brothers and sisters. Let's take some time, as we do weekly, to go to God in a, a moment of confession. This could be a moment where we engage in self-examination. It could be a moment in which we ask God to make himself known to us in a new and more profound way. It could be a moment in which we acknowledge that we do have a steady relationship with Christ, but we have just been distracted by his love, and it's become a common thing that we've grown used to. Let's pray quietly for a moment, and then I will close this time together.